Hey, as we dive into tonight, let me give just a little bit of a, of a confession, less so, that, uh, less so that you don't think ill of what we do tonight, more so to just say it, 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 it always bugs me. Uh, I, I cannot comment much. We've, we've had in the last 24 hours a family situation that we've uh, been having to deal with. Uh, everybody, as far as parents, siblings, grandparents is safe, but it's not anything that I can, due to the nature of it, speak about, but it's definitely kind of consumed the last 24 hours. So my notes are not quite to the level I would normally like them to be in terms of some specificness. So if you can forgive me for that, the, the great news is uh, it, my notes are just things I use. The good news is if the worst case was the worst, we could just read scripture aloud and the Lord would show up and we'd be good if we believe what we're actually going to study tonight. So that said, when we think about developing a biblical worldview, you cannot develop a biblical worldview apart from a correct view of the Bible. That's kind of the whole reason we said we're not using the term Christian worldview because unfortunately in today's culture, the term Christian has, has become watered down to mean too many different things to too many different people. What we specifically mean is we mean a worldview, the lenses through which we see everything is through the living holy word of God. Now understand, every worldview begins somewhere there is a basic assumption. Okay, it's impossible to have a worldview apart from it. And as much as anybody says, well, our, our worldview is not even the naturalistic worldviews, uh, secular humanism, Marxism, when they say, well, you can't, your, your, your assumption as a biblical worldview is, is with this book, the Bible, and you didn't, you haven't seen God, you didn't see him write it, you weren't there for the, and they try to make it look like, well, you're crazy for having an assumption. Understand, they make an assumption too. Their assumption is that all that exists is what we can see and touch and feel and observe and, and use the inductive reasoning of the scientific method on which is quite a crazy statement to make when you think about the very, very finite small amount of things we can actually do that with in comparison to the universe, in comparison. What's the stat? Like, we've explored more of the moon than our own oceans. Realize how crazy that is because we've only ever put 12 people on the moon. Um, it's also crazy because you can't perform the scientific method on love or hope, or sorrow, but that's the end result of what that is. So every worldview has a basic assumption. The issue is not if there's a basic assumption, it's whether that basic cornerstone is actually true and can weather the tests of all the things that are out there, and, and Scripture certainly can. So understand, it's come to the Word of God. Listen, listen to some of these. I tried to give just some stats on where, uh, where things are in terms of scripture. So uh, Barna found, began tracking back in the 70s. So let me just give you, this is, this is Americans broadly. Uh, in 1991, 70% of Americans believed the Bible is the accurate word of God. In 2001, that number went down 10% to 60%. In 2011, 10 years later, it actually rose to 62%. And when they conducted the same question last year in 2021, it dropped to 41%. So when we think of worldview, think, quickly see the changes that are there. Uh, amongst Americans, uh, how many hold an orthodox biblical view of God? 
Same years, 1991 found 86% of Americans held an orthodox view of God. 2001, 72. 2011, 67. 2021, only 46%. Uh, in that 41% that affirmed the Bible is the accurate word of God, listen to this. Those who identified and said, yes, I would identify as a Christian, only 52% of self-identifying Christians believe that the Bible is the accurate word of God. Uh, of those who would say, I am a Christian because I'm born again, only 60% said that the Bible's the accurate word of God. Under those who actually, in answering the questions correctly, legitimately, likely are born again, only 74%. So understand this idea of scripture and, and, and what we're gonna unpack in these next several weeks, it is massive because we have not passed on proper beliefs about scripture well. And so uh, we've got to dive in and make sure that we understand what scripture is, what the Bible says about the Bible, because if we're off there, when we say, thus saith the Lord, we're going to go, but I don't believe thus saith. It's going to wreck the whole thing. This is the, the stone with which we're going to start. Uh, and remember, I said last week, when that paper I gave you, and we didn't have time to go into all about paper, it gave you all those different philosophers. Every one of those philosophers contributed at least one major social, scientific, theological idea that was either built upon by the others or contradicted by the others, and then they, they built upon, and, and all of those philosophers contributed something to the way that we think morally and ethically and religiously, culturally today. And every one of them, every one of their departures all came down to the same basic starting point, which is, the Bible says this, here's my reason I reject it. It's where all of them come down to. It was the core of, of Protestant liberalism was subjecting our view of Scripture to cultural trends. I'm, that's on your notes from last week. Protestant liberalism. We're seeing all the, the move of Darwinism and evolution, and that's making this idea of six-day literal creation and miracles. It, it, it's, not, it's not trending socially anymore. And so what the Protestant uh, scholastic scholars did in Germany is they began to say, then we've got to find a way to still uphold Scripture but cut those parts out that don't fit with these moves, which as we'll see tonight, you can't do. So you've got views like that, but you've also got inside of conservative Bible-believing churches, you've got, and I've mentioned this term, that sometimes in the church we have been, and the proper term is anti-intellectual. And what I mean by that is not necessarily that in the church we go, hey, it's a bad thing to be intelligent. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that sometimes we are so honed in that every sermon, every teaching ought to either do something to me emotionally or it should give me something practical I can go do and achieve. Now, I have no problem with a sermon impacting you emotionally. That's good. I have no problem in a sermon that has that things from the text that we should go do, calling us to go do them. Those things aren't bad, but let me tell you where it is bad. When I first went to Central, and part of what was laid out to me when I went there to do work with college students is we've got to impact and really dive in and change the, the focus of the college ministry to developing students with a biblical worldview because we're watching this trend of students who are coming out and they're, they're falling away. They're not holding tight. They're not, it's okay. So again, founding point is, is what we did here. And so I said, okay, we're gonna do, this was, I spent a semester getting to everybody, kind of did some different series. And in that January, I said, we're gonna take four weeks and we're gonna walk through four key questions about scripture. 
So we took, we took a week, I think two weeks to walk through it theologically, and then we were going to take a week to walk through, you know, here's the historical and scientific criticisms you're hearing your professor say, how do we answer those? We had all this, right? I had, a, on week three, I had a table host email me, uh, adult volunteer, and they said, hey, just want you to know just what we're hearing from the students. They're getting really tired of this series. Don't know if it's just not hitting them right, just not. And I don't know if it really was the students or if it was just that table host, but here's why that is coming up, though because I know what I taught. I'm not above someone. I'm, listen, I don't think I'm the world's most gifted preacher, teacher, whatever. I also know that I'm not the absolute worst either. And at that point, I wasn't like I was doing it for the first time. The difference is we, by and large, have people who walk in the church and go, pastor, I don't want you to make me think about something. I want you to make me feel better. And there's time to feel better but you cannot consistently feel better if you have no clue what you actually believe. Then you're gonna find other things to which is why we end up in the stats we've looked at. So understand as we, as we break this down, as we walk through it over the next several weeks, it is vital that we have a thoroughly biblical, uh, very well-rounded view of scripture and how to engage with it and how to talk about it with a culture that questions it. And so that's what we're going to do. So if, if you've got your cheat sheet, before we jump super into one passage, but get your Bibles out and make sure your fingers are loose. And I'm going to do my best. Is Jolene here tonight? She's not here. I gave her permission to holler at me if I didn't do what I said, but she's not here to holler at me. Uh, I'm going to do my best to repeat multiple times the scripture references so you know and, uh, and go through. Okay, when we, when you, if you ever pick up a theology textbook, the first thing you're going to see in most textbooks is the doctrine of revelation. It's what's on your cheat sheet. By revelation, we mean revealing something that was hidden. Here's what we mean. How do we know God is God? Well, at some point, God had to reveal himself. That's called revelation. You're exposing. There's two kinds of revelation that we see in Scripture. First one is what we call general or universal revelation. This is the idea. It's what God reveals about himself through nature, through history, through science, through humans, and it's available to any person at any time in any place. And this is what you see in places like Romans chapter 1, where Paul writes and makes this statement. This is Romans 1. You don't have to turn there, but Paul writes, Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's what he says. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. And then in chapter 2, he says, looking at the Jews who have the law, that they're just as guilty because they disobey the law that they know when you look at cultures that didn't have the Old Testament law who abide by many of the same standards. Why? Because basic morality has been written on the human heart. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says this, that God has set eternity on man's heart. There are aspects of who God is and aspects of how God is that are clearly revealed both within us and around us. That's what general revelation is. It's, it's that longing inside the human heart for something more this world can't satisfy. 
It's that looking out when you go for, if you, if you love the mountains like Bethany and I do, it's when you come up and you get to the, that, that lookout point and you see the view and you go, oh my goodness, it's glorious. If we understand those things rightly, they drive us to ask the question, who is God and seek him? They're not enough knowledge to save us, but it is enough knowledge to either cause us to seek or condemn us. No one is without excuse. Second form of revelation is what we would call, some would be special, specific, particular. This is God revealing himself in a specific way at a specific time to specific people. So that would be the idea of, of God meeting Moses at the burning bush and revealing his name, Yahweh. That would be God parting the Red Sea and revealing his hand to the, ex, to the Exodus. That would be all throughout. Scripture tells us, Hebrews chapter 1, that the fullness and final reality of God's specific revelation, Hebrews 1 says this, long ago God spoke to the fathers through the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. The final perfect revelation of who is God to man is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of all specific revelation. If you want to ask the question, who is God? Jesus. What is God like? Jesus. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God to mankind. Now, obviously, we don't live in the day of Christ's earthly life. So how do we know about Jesus? How do we know about these ways that God has revealed? We know about the living word through the breathed out word. And I, my, my, I hadn't heard my dad say this before, but I was talking, he said he likes to say, just as the living word, Jesus, is fully God and fully man, so we'll see tonight that the written word is written by God through men. There's a corollary there. So this is what specific revelation is. Ultimately, specific revelation is fulfilled in Christ and is fully given to us through God's word. So if you got your copy of God's word, flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy is the last, the last thing that we have recorded that Paul will write before he is executed and in it, he's writing his son in the faith. There's probably no closer relationship from what we understand that Paul had with any other human being than Timothy. And, and, and it's interesting, before, before we go there, just understand as it relates to what our conversation is of having a biblical worldview in our current climate. He ends the letter in chapter four by telling Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Preach the word. What are you gonna preach? The word, Timothy. Be ready in season of out of season. Be ready to preach the word, whether you see people responding or whether you see people rejecting. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Timothy, there's a time coming when people won't want to listen to the truth because they will want people to tell them what makes them feel good and that they want to hear. They'll turn away their ears from the truth. They'll turn aside to miss. But look what he says in verse five of chapter four. But you be sober in all things. 
Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. We've talked about on Sunday mornings a couple weeks back. Every one of us, God has called to ministry. Every one of us, God has a plan for our lives. Every one of us, there is a ministry through our lives if we are in Christ that God desires to do. And the charge is the same to all of us. Will we fulfill the ministry that by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we've been called to? And the key for us to do that is the same key for Timothy. I took you to chapter four because I want you to see the charge. It's the same charge we have. It's know, love, and follow Jesus faithfully, truly, deeply, fully, until he calls you and I home. But how do we get there? Look at this in chapter three. Go back to the beginning of chapter three, but realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. I don't know if these are the last days or not. We're closer to them than Paul when he was writing them. And are there difficult times? Yes. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I don't know anybody like that today. <laughs> Must be because I dug a hole and didn't log on to my phone or the news or social media. I wish that music had fit the nastiness of this passage, but it doesn't. This is gross. Um, but look at this. They're not just all these things, but look where this is located. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. We're not even just talking about the world here. We're talking about people who are claiming a form of godliness in Christ. But the reason they deny its power is because the resurrection life of Christ isn't what's coming out of their life. It's all these things. And he goes on and talks about them if they've given up truth. And then he, verse 10, he knows, Timothy, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, and goes through all this. And look what he says in verse 14. You, however, oh, look at verse 13. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Proclaiming a bad worldview and falling for a bad worldview. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing who you learned them from. From your childhood, catch this, you have known the sacred writings. Now for Timothy, the sacred writings, there's the reference for scripture. For Timothy, that would have been the literal Old Testament that you and I know today. The New Testament wasn't finished being put together. And if you go, well, pastor, what do you mean put together? Guess what? Got great news. We're going to answer that in a couple of weeks. I'll walk you through the whole thing. It'd be great. Um, and then someone says, you know that the Bible wasn't always put together in 66 books. You can say, yes, I do, and let me tell you how it came, and then they won't have, be able to deal with you. Um, <laughs> you know the sacred writings, and look what the sacred writings are able to do, to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, which is a powerful statement because that means if all you had access to is the Old Testament, if you actually read and understand the Old Testament rightly, it doesn't lead you to a place of blind pharisaical legalism like it did the Jews of Jesus' day. It'll lead you to a place where you understand salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's what he writes there. And look what he says. All Scripture. The Greek word for all is form of a word called, it sounds pas, pantas. If you want to know what all means in Greek, it means all, every last drop. 
There's no qualifier there. All scripture, everything that is considered scripture is inspired by God. Literally, the verb there is breathed out by God. And it's interesting play because the word for breath is very similar to the word for spirit, pneuma, pneumatas. The idea is that God has breathed out scripture. It is, comes from within him and comes out of him via the Holy Spirit. It is inspired, it is God breathed. And because it's God breathed, it is therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that every man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. That's what he says, he says, Timothy, all scripture Every last ounce of it is, is breathed out by God. It's produced by the Spirit. It comes out and it's beneficial for teaching, the giving of knowledge, for rebuking, for, for ex- expressing dis- disapproval, for correction, meaning to set someone straight, for training. It's the idea of discipline, of, of growing, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Every good work, which by the way, Ephesians 2.10 says what? You and I were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So how are you and I gonna actually fulfill the works that God has laid out before us? It is to, through scripture. Scripture, scripture's what is adequate to correct us, to train us, to teach us, to give us the knowledge, to guard us, to protect us. Because scripture is breathed out by God inspired. And so you say on your sheets there is that wrote the issue of inspiration. What do we mean by inspiration? When we say that scripture is inspired by God, we mean that the Bible comes directly from God. The Bible does not come as a result of simple human effort. It's not the work that a group of men did and then later on God decided to put his blessing on it. From the moment that those words were pinned on whatever thing they were pinned on, they were coming directly from God via the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, using real, actual, living, breathing men to do it. God's word, remember this, is breathed out, not breathed into. It's breathed out from God, not something man put together and breathed into. Men didn't write words and God chose to make them authoritative or, or, no, it is from God. That's what this passage says. All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture. And someone might say, well, all scripture there, that just refers to the Old Testament. Yes, except depending on when you want to date stuff and what views you have of the gospels, there's very likely at this point three gospels that could be in circulation. We know the gospel of John was written later towards, uh, towards 90 AD. You've got gospels that are in there. If you flip over a couple pages to 2 uh, 2 Peter, it's one of my favorite little strange verses often skipped. And it should make all of you who've ever read the letters of Paul and had a really hard question feel really good about yourselves. This is Peter writing. Peter, the top dog disciple apostle of Christ. Peter writes, and he says this in verse 15, 2 Peter 3, 15. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just also as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. He also in his, all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand. 
I love it. Peter's like, hey, Paul's written you about these things, and man, when he writes, there's stuff that's hard to understand. Peter had trouble with understanding Paul sometimes. It should make all of us feel better. Things that are hard to understand, which, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do the rest of scriptures. Wait a minute. As they do the, the rest of scriptures, meaning that for Peter, when Peter looks at Paul's letters, Peter looks at Paul's letters and says, Scripture. So we say all scripture, and there, there is, it is true there, historically there is a process by which we call canonization of how various uh, pastors got together and were able to look at and determine and go, these 66 books in the Bible, we recognize and see the sign, seal, and blessing of God's breathing them out. There is a real process for that. It's not like one day all of a sudden there was no Bible and all of a sudden, boom, there was a hardback papyrus that said the Holy Bible on top and there were the 66 books. We're going to walk through that. We don't have time to tonight. That's going to be uh, later on here in a couple weeks. And it was a very guided, solid, nothing to be worried about question process. But all scripture is breathed out by God. What we call this is plenary inspiration. That's the term. And listen, I don't care if you remember all these terms. These are just there in case you ever encounter people who start bringing this stuff up and you need to have something to look back to to help. What's plenary inspiration? It simply means this. Every last drop of this Bible is breathed out by God. Not part, not some, all. All of it is breathed out by God. God, the whole of Scripture is inspired, is breathed out, given from God. If you're still there in 2 Peter, flip back to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, look at this statement. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. 2 Peter 1, 16. We do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance was made, by, uh, made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit speaking. When Jesus in the gospels is referring to the Psalms and the law and the prophets, he refers to them as God's word. So if Jesus is the full revelation of God and Jesus views the Psalms and the law and the prophets as God's word, guess what that means? It's God's word. We see all throughout that scripture, all of scripture is viewed as inspired by God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. If I can spin my pages here. For we are from God, he who knows God listens to us, he who does not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and error. John in the, in, in the letter to John is saying, look, if you choose not to listen to what I'm saying, you're rejecting what God is saying. So all scripture is breathed out, not part, not some, all. 
Hopefully we're clear on that. Okay, so to what level is it, in, is, is it inspired? And, and there's various theories out there, because here's it, okay, if God wrote it and he used humans to write it, did they know they were writing the word of God? Did, did, did God dictate, did they hear an audible voice from God and dictate everything, they, how, how did that play out? And there's essentially, there's essentially five theories. You see these on, on your, on your uh, page. The in, intuition theory that, that says that, well, the writers of scripture simply had a high degree of religious insight. Well, I think if every prophecy came given by the Holy Spirit, we can chunk that one out, that doesn't add up. The illumination theory that the Holy Spirit just gave them a heightened sense of power and authority. He didn't really, he didn't give them any specific guidance that they wrote. I think we can chunk that out. The dynamic theory that God, God gave certain concepts to the writers, but, but not actually any kind of specific direction. The verbal theory that the Holy Spirit guided the biblical writers that every word they used in detail is what God intended to be written. And then the dictation theory, which is kind of a hyper-dogmatic view, which says that God literally whispered every word they should say and they wrote it down, uh, like a dictation. Historical Orthodox Christianity would use the term plenary verbal inspiration, meaning all of Scripture plenary is breathed out by God and it is verbally inspired. It means each one of those men who wrote Scripture, the Holy Spirit guided their thoughts, used their cultures, their backgrounds, their settings absolutely used that. When you read Paul, Paul has a different style than Peter, who has a different style than Luke. That's because God delighted to use human authors, their styles, their backgrounds, their communication abilities, but it was the Holy Spirit on each one guiding them to put down exactly what God wanted. So that when you and I read scripture, there's not a part of scripture that is somehow not what God wanted recorded. So what does that mean? That means you're either going to fall in the verbal category or the dictation category. Uh, I don't think you have to go as far. We don't know. Did God literally whisper every word in their ear? Did God, did, did God, uh, did God put certain ideas in their minds and then made sure to guide. Scripture really doesn't break it down far enough. I know that absolutely scripture was verbally inspired, which is why we can then make these conclusions. All of God's word is God's word. All parts of scripture are just as inspired as the others. So understand what that means. Those genealogies and chronicles that you probably skip over are just as inspired as John 3.16 are just as important to the heart of God as John 3.16. May not apply in the same way, but all are just as inspired. Psalms is just as inspired as, as, as Romans. It is, that means that it's God's word all the time, whether or not you and I have an experience with it. Now, maybe if, if you're older, that may not be as, a, as, as major of a statement, but I watch all the time with, with my generation and the other younger generations who seem to be like, when that sermon really touches me emotionally, oh yeah, God's word. But then when I'm not really feeling it, oh, God's not talking to me. Well, he's written the whole word to you. It doesn't really matter what you and I feel. I'm sympathetic to the times when, it, when you're in a dry season spiritually, that's a different conversation, but we understand that it's God's word all the time and not just an experience. When, when thus saith God over here delights you, it's, it's just as inspired as when thus saith God over here costs you something. You don't get to pick and choose based on, it, on what experience you get from it. 
It's also important to understand this. We saw this alluded to by Peter in, in that Second Peter chapter three passage, but it's important to understand God's word, every ounce of it is inspired by God, but even though it is inspired, and it's got five realities we're gonna look through quickly here in a second, even though it's God's inspired word, it can be twisted, misused, and abused. Unless you think, and I think that it's not, the two major times that we see Satan himself tempt somebody, Adam and Eve, Jesus. Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus in the wilderness. Both times, Satan is quoting God's word. So understand the number one tactic we see of Satan tempting people in scripture is to take God's word and twist it. And use it to an end, which is why, and we're gonna do this in a couple weeks, you and I better know how to read and interpret scripture right. In fact, many of the problems that have happened within the Bible-believing church have not been because we've had a wrong doctrinal view of scripture, it's been because we've not applied scripture correctly. And there's a whole lot of different ways that that comes about. But all of Scripture is inspired. And that means there's five realities. And you see them there on your cheat sheet. One, it means Scripture is understandable. Now, this, this is going to kind of be a simple one. If you've got your Bibles, flip over to book of Psalms, chapter 18. Psalm 18. Sorry to make you jump halfway across, but if, if you feel better, just close your Bible and let it fall open in the middle and you'll be there. Psalm 18. Yeah, let's go with Psalm 19. I mixed up the 8 and 9 on my notes. Psalm eight, I was about to tell you is to go to Psalm 18, 9, in which case uh, it would say... Smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens. Yeah, that's not where we're... Let's try Psalm 19, verse 8. That would be the correct place. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Go back to verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The idea there is that what God says in his word, the simple-hearted possess the ability to understand. I mean, listen how huge that is. God, who is beyond our full comprehension and understanding, communicates in a way with you and I that you and I can actually understand it. We can understand what he's saying and who he is. And that's mind-blowing if we really think about it. What is God's heart for humanity Sunday? God's heart for humanity is such he actually wants to know his humans and wants his humans to know him. Not just our ideas about him, but to actually know him. Understandability. God's word is breathed out from God, then it by default is authoritative. It's a famous quote from the former president of the Sunday School Board, of the, which is now Lifeway. Most of you probably know what the Baptist Sunday School Board is. My granddad changed it to Lifeway, so if you don't like that, don't take it out on me or him, but he was the one who did it. Uh, 
but back in the 20s, I believe it was uh, J. Robert Frost, I believe, um, who, who made this statement, thus saith the Lord is the end of all controversy. If God is God and God's word is breed out by God, it is inspired by God, then that means what God's word says goes, period. It means God's word is the authority. If God's word says it, that's how it is. That's what it is. It is the authority. It alone has the power and ability and the right to shake and mold and move and keep and guard and make us fully competent and equipped followers of Christ. That's what Paul's telling Timothy in that passage in 2 Timothy. God's word comes alive as the Holy Spirit moves within us. We, 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 but we will not, uh, we have to recognize God's word is authority, which is why I say, when you and I read scripture, the worst question we could ever ask in a Bible study is what does this mean to me? Or what does this mean to you? It doesn't matter what it means to you and I. It matters what it means to God. And then it doesn't matter what you and I think of what it means to God. If that's what God says, it's true, period. Thus saith the Lord is the end of all controversy. Inerrancy. What we mean by inerrancy is that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact, nor does it contradict itself, but it is flawless and perfect. Look back at Psalm uh, 19 there with me. Make sure. No, flip over to Psalm 12. It's not Psalm 19, it's Psalm 12. Verse 6, Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure. Silver tried on a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. The meaning the word of the Lord is without error. There is no error in the Lord's word. This is default, right? If, if God is truly God, listen to how one theologian put it. If God knows all things, then he cannot be ignorant of any error. If he knows everything, he can't be in error. If he has all power, then he's able to impact the biblical author's writing so that nothing erroneous enters into the final product. And being a truthful being, he will utilize all these abilities to make sure that no human is misled by the scriptures. Scripture is without error. Now that statement I read to you, scripture in the original manuscripts, that's straight out of our Baptist faith and message that we affirm as a church and many other Southern Baptist congregations. Before you go, well, wait a minute, the original manuscripts, we don't have those. Guess what? We're gonna come back to that question too later on. And I've got great news for you. We don't have the original manuscripts and that's really good news because we have so many thousands of thousands of manuscripts that we have basic certainty of what the originals say, but no one can go when we say this is the original, no one can go, well, how do you know it's the original? We can go, hey, look at all these thousands of copies that all say the same thing. God's word is without error. The reason we say in the original manuscripts is because of things like. Now, I'm going to be clear. I'm not trying to knock anything, though I certainly have an opinion. But I'm just making an example. There is a difference between the New American Standard translation of the Bible and the message paraphrase of the Bible. Yet to your average person, they walk in a bookstore and see both as a Bible. The message isn't a translation. It's a single guy's paraphrasing of every verse in his own words. The New American Standard is a translation that had a committee that looked at all of the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts and came together and tried to translate it in the way that the English most reflect those languages. And that's what a good translation does. 
The reason we say the original manuscripts is because someone could come in, take scripture and rewrite it. And if we call that a Bible and say, oh, look, God's word is breathed out. This is no, that has error because man got involved in a way that was not inspired by God. Now, inerrancy, there's a reason we use the word inerrancy. If you study historically, the word you will see is infallible. That's the word that has been used historically. And for a long time, it simply meant scripture has no error. And then in some of the controversies that really started ramping up in our circles, Southern Baptist circles, United States in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that word infallible began to, to take on a different sense. So the Bible's true in everything it tells us about God, but there's room for it to have mistakes historically or scientifically. I mean, we know that, we know that the sun can't just stop and shine like for Joshua. That, that, you know, that's, that's, not, that's poetry. That's not real. That's it was mistaken. It. So this word infallible began to be pushed over here, and the response back was to then take a more precise word and use the word inerrant without error, meaning that not just as every part of this Bible completely and totally inspired by God, but every part of this Bible in the way it affirms what it affirms is without error. So when this Bible says that God parted the Red Sea in half, what does it mean? It means God parted the Red Sea in half. It does not mean that they were in a knee-high swamp and a really strong gust of wind blew long enough to blow back the water so they could cross on mushy swamp ground. That's not what it means. And you laugh, that is a real argument by even some conservative scholars. Because, well, I mean, miracle, you can't, you can't part a body water in half. You're right, you can't and I can't and no other being in all creation can, but if you're God, you sure as darn tootin' can. I don't know how to say that stronger on my lack of sleep today. So, but even today, there are people who are saying, well, Scripture is inerrant in its purpose because they're trying. I mentioned this several weeks. There is a literal movement to say, and these are among people that would say, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He lived a real life. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. But Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are all poetry and mythology that you and I are not made uniquely and distinctly in the image of God. You and I are evolved from apes over thousands of years, and at a certain point when things got to where God wanted them, he put his image on us. Except that completely undermines everything I preach Sunday if you really follow it through logically. And it means that the image of God is not something innate to humanity. It's something God laid on top of us, which means it could be taken off of us all sorts of problems that go there, but the word we use is inerrant. It is without error. It is trustworthy. It is perfect. And here's what's interesting. The key point when you look historically, when a church, an individual, a theologian, a pastor, a group of churches begins to deny this core part of Scripture, that Scripture is without error, when that begins to be denied, that is the starting point for the denial of all the other doctrines, depending on which they choose to deny. And by the way, this is both, this is a good thing, though I think in our pride it has become a damaging thing. If you study church history, there are all sorts of people that have started going down the path that the Bible has errors. Every single group of churches that has started that path 
has fallen to ultimately denying Christ. And those that still held on to Christ or held on to scripture broke off and started something new. In 2,000 years of church history, there is only one group of churches that has ever started that direction and course corrected. And it's the Southern Baptist Convention in the 1980s. It's the only group of churches that has ever started that direction and course corrected. And if you want to know how bad it was, students going to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, were coming out with their indivs less than half believing that scripture had no error and like 25% only affirming Jesus literally died on the cross and rose from the grave. It was bad. When you take that step, everything falls. Two other quick aspects. God's word is sufficient. What we mean by sufficient is this, that scripture contains everything God intends it to contain and that in scripture, everything we need to know to be saved and rightly related to God, to trust God perfectly, to know him intimately, to follow him faithfully, every last thing we need is contained in scripture. Scripture alone is sufficient. Now, inerrancy culturally is the biggest attack on, on scripture for us. Inside our church world, sufficiency is the greatest attack. So from, from those who deny Christ, lost world, liberalized Christianity, whatever, it's inerrancy. For those of us inside who are good, solid, Bible-believing, without-error people, our struggle has been with sufficiency. And we'll, we'll come back later. I'll give you an example. How many times have I heard a college girl Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. Did you get the new Bethmore Bible study? I'm so ready to start. I just, have been, I just have not known what to do since I finished her last one two months ago. Listen, I'm not trying to knock Bethmore. I'm not trying to knock her Bible studies. But Bethmore Bible studies are not the sufficient word of God. That's been sitting on your desk collecting dust for the last two months. Or, um, you know, we need, we need to do we need to really, we really preach a sermon, a series, sermon series on parenting, and we'll pull out a couple Bible verses, but for the most part, we're going to teach these parenting books. Now, look, I'm not knocking, or I'm not knocking Christian bookstores. I'm not knocking Christian books. Come to my office. John Patty built me enough safe to have 4,000 of them. I'm about 60% there. But if you and I lost access to every single Christian book ever written, it wouldn't change a single thing in our ability to know, love, and follow Jesus Christ. Because the word is sufficient. But most of us don't think it's sufficient because we don't really know how to actually read it and understand it and hear God speak to every area of our life and apply it rightly. And if you go, wow, that's really true, Pastor, congrats. Come back next week because that's what we're going to dive into. Scripture is sufficient. It's all we need. It cannot and must not ever be added to. It means if it's sufficient, there's nothing new to come. There's no new prophecy. There's no new writing. There's no new, uh, nothing there. If, if it means, and it means that nothing of God will ever contradict what Scripture says, meaning this, the Holy Spirit can never lead you or I in a way, you or me in a way that contradicts his word. Now let me give you a real simple, easy example of what I mean. Bible says, don't date a non-believer. How many students have I, have I, had, have I had say, 
I'll just give you a real example. Uh, we had a student uh, before we left, Carrollton, who, uh, junior in high school, loved the Lord, felt like the Lord was leading her into some area of international missions. And a guy at her school started to like her. She thought he, you know, she was really flattered. No guy ever really liked her, shown her attention. He really, uh, and, and he, she thought he was cute. And there's nothing wrong with any of what I just said. The issue was he was openly not a believer. And she kept flirting with it, and we kept talking to her and said, hey, you know, this, this is not, if you do this, this is going against God's word. And she got to a point where she was ready to sacrifice it, which, man, you talk about an opportunity for God to really grow you through what for her was going to be suffering. Man, he would have done it. Then two things happened. One, she came back and said, well, I found some people who say something different about that scripture, and I don't agree with your interpretation. But the thing that happened before that was mom and dad got practical and said, you know, he said he'd come to church with her. This would be an opportunity for him to hear the gospel. For him to hear the gospel. This is good dating experience for her. And so mom and dad said it was okay. And six years later, they're still dating. I'm not sure she goes to church, and she sure as goodness isn't pursuing the Lord for anything with missions. In fact, she's become very liberalized and radicalized. Because she said, God said she could do something that God in his word said she can't do. God will never lead you in a way that contradicts his written word. Because then that means God doesn't actually know what he wrote, and God's in error, and it brings up all sorts of other things. So it means we cannot focus on what we think about it, but on what God says and means, and what we're to do as a result. The word of the Lord is sufficient. The last aspect is power. We simply mean this, that God's word is powerful. Hebrews 4.12, the, living, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a, two, a two-edged sword. Isaiah 55, I send my word out, it does not return to me void. Here's the reality. It's why I said if all my notes were burned up and my mind was just completely shot and tonight was a total wash, but all I did is say open your Bibles and we just read the word of God out loud, there would be power in that. Not because I have anything, but because his word is powerful. His word has the ability to pierce depths in you and I. You and I can't pierce with our own mind and thought. His word has the ability to pierce us, to see us. For we're laid bare before it according to Hebrews 4. It's why if you and I remove ourselves out of regular intake of his word, which what does Jesus say? That we should not live on bread alone, but what every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You can go a long time without eating bread, but if you go at any time without eating of the word of God, disaster strikes. It's why you don't need when I preach. It's why I'm so convictionally and unapologetically committed to being a text-driven preacher. You don't need my opinion. You need God's word. And my job as a pastor is to do the labor and the study to understand what God is saying and tell you, church family, this is what God is saying because it's God's word that has the power to change your life, your kid's life, your, your, your grandparents' life, your friend's life, this person's life, that's life. It's not the eloquence or wise words of man or wisdom, which is why Paul said to Corinthians, I chose to come and not be eloquent among you, that your faith would not rest in the plausible words of men, but in the power of the cross. Because God's word is powerful. We should pray God's word. We should cling to God's word for life. We should eat it daily. We should trust it. 
because if God breathed out his word, it means we can understand it. It is our final authority. It is without error. It is all we need. It is sufficient, and it is powerful because it's God's word. And by the way, how did go back to the beginning? In the beginning, the earth was formless and void, and God said, let there be light. There was light. Light before there was ever a light source. There were no stars, were no sun. There was light. How's that possible? Because God's word is powerful. So what does the Bible say about the Bible? It says it's breathed out by God, which means it's authoritative. It's without error. It's sufficient. It's able to be understood by you and I, common, average, everyday people. So I don't care if you remember any of the dumb terms on your page. I'm not trying to turn you into seminary students. Because God has communicated in a way that what does Jesus say? Faith like a child? That the simple-hearted would understand. And God's word is powerful. That's what God's word says about God's word. And it's on the basis of that that we'll walk through next week and start to pick up on, okay, then in light of all of this, how do we open up God's word and actually hear him and meet him and understand it and not end up in twisted danger zones? So here's what I'm gonna do. Uh, we will... Um, we're done for tonight. If you just join me in prayer and uh, appreciate you coming out, do pray you're safely getting home. Uh, stay warm. Stay bundled up. Stay home. I told someone today Texans are terrible driving in the rain or even worse, driving on ice. Yes. So be safe. Appreciate you being here tonight. And um, we will see you Sunday for our beloved. Brother Mike's recognition Sunday morning and back here Sunday night for a really sweet time of reception and fellowship honoring he and Sally. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word's clear. Thank you that your word's true. God, thank you, God. Thank you that we are blessed to actually have copies of your word in our own tongue that we can read. When I think of the time I walked in and looked at Dad and and I said, Dad, I just feel like God's not really talking to me. And I was looking for a spiritual answer. And Lord, you know what he said. And he said, well, how does a person talk? And I said, with words. And he said, well, what do you do when you don't speak audibly? You write them down. And, oh, I will never forget, Lord, realizing I don't have to have a special experience to hear you speak. Certainly there's times you, you, you just a verse pops out and, Lord, you use it to convict heart. But the reality is, Lord, in my own language, I can open up your word and hear you speak just by reading it. So Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it makes us wise to salvation, that it is sufficient to reprove, to rebuke, to correct, to train us in righteousness, to make us adequate, able for every good work that you've laid out before us in Christ Jesus. So Lord, may we be a church unashamed of your word and may me be a church that just consumes your word that sees everything about this world through the lens of your word it's in your name we pray jesus